This episode is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's new subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Been dreaming of a stitch fix for books? Now it's here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for, and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. Visit mytbr.co slash treatyourshelf to sign up today. That's mytbr.co slash treatyourshelf. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first episode in our new schedule, which is one new episode on the first of every month. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you thought about new or old episodes, give us story ideas, or generally let us know about interesting things we might be interested in. Our email address is annotated at bookriot.com. Okay, on to the show. In the fall of 1952, the government of France decided to disinter an organist who had been dead for 100 years. The city of Coupe was informed that the organist was to be reburied at the Pantheon, next to the likes of Voltaire, Victor Hugo, Marie Curie, and other French luminaries. Local officials in Coupe protested, and though their objection was overruled, they did finagle one concession. Before the body was to be moved, the organist's hands would be cut off and placed in an urn on top of the original grave. The rest of the body would go to Paris and would be reburied with extreme pomp and circumstance, including speeches and tributes from dignitaries from around the globe. The most moving speech was given in grammatically flawless French by a deaf and blind woman named Helen Keller. She was there to eulogize the man who had made it possible for her and millions of other blind people to pursue careers, participate in the arts, and be a part of society at large in ways that were simply impossible before. Keller captured the importance of Louis Braille with a single line. We the blind are as indebted to Louis Braille as mankind is to Gutenberg. Keller and the other distinguished guests then led a parade following Braille's coffin as it winded its way through the streets of Paris to its final place of honor in the Pantheon. They were followed by a singularly striking funeral procession. Through the streets of Paris came a proud and heroic band. These were the blind, marching to the tapping of white canes in a mile-long cortege from the institution of the young blind where Braille had lain overnight in state. Behind the coffin, in this state funeral procession, came column after column of the blind, to whom Louis Braille had, in his way, given sight. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. In this episode, the story of Louis Braille and the writing system he invented that is still in use today, more than 150 years later. It is a story of childhood trauma, of a particularly ingenious man, and evolving attitudes toward blind people that led to monumental change in the education of blind people the world over. The cortege neared the Pantheon, France's memorial to her great men. The coffin was carried into the marble hall, to be enshrined with the nation's honored dead. In this milestone of the century event, France's highest dignitaries honored a man who brought the wonders of the printed page to his own. For from the age of three, Louis Braille too was blind. This episode is sponsored by The Dutch Wife by Ellen Keith. In the best-selling tradition of the Nightingale and Lilac Girls comes a sweeping story of love and survival during World War II. Amsterdam, May 1943. 
the last signs of Dutch resistance are being swept away. Marika and her husband are arrested and deported to different concentration camps in Germany. Marika is given a terrible choice to suffer a slow death in the labor camp or, for a chance at survival, to join the camp brothel. The Dutch Wife is a novel about the blurred lines between love and lust, abuse and resistance, and right and wrong, and a harrowing story of the capacity of ordinary people to persevere under extraordinary circumstances. Pick up The Dutch Wife by Ellen Keith from Park Row Books wherever books are sold, or click a link in the show notes. In the late 18th century, people in France and elsewhere were starting to think differently about social problems. What if the conditions in which certain parts of society lived weren't ordained by God, but created by man, and thus addressable by man? It was in this atmosphere of rethinking the human order that, in 1771, a 26-year-old named Valentin Huey, who was working as an interpreter, came upon a musical performance at a streetside cafe during the celebration of St. Ovid. In it, a group of nine blind men were performing as a grotesque orchestra, wearing garish robes and playing discordant music, while the conductor, also blind and dressed up in donkey's ears, helplessly waved a baton. Huey was mortified. He had recently read a pamphlet by Diderot about an encounter he had had with an astounding blind mathematician, and the effect this encounter had on Diderot's awareness of how French society had essentially discarded the lives of its blind. Huey wrote a letter soon after seeing the St. Ovid Orchestra and in one line laid out the cause that he would pursue for the rest of his life. He wrote, The blind, said we to ourselves, do they not know the objects by the diversity of their shapes? Are they mistaken in the value of a coin? Why could they not distinguish a C from a G in music or an A from an F in spelling if their characters were rendered plain? Huey recognized that for the blind to become part of society, the first step was for them to become part of literate society. And to become literate, you needed to be educated. And to be educated, you needed a way to read. Huey's quest for a workable system of teaching the blind to read started with a single student named Francois Lesseur. They started with woodblock letters, which Lesseur could identify by touch, but producing large amounts of text in this way wasn't practical. The first breakthrough came when Lesseur discovered he could correctly identify printed material if the letters were heavily embossed. Huey realized this was a breakthrough, and after staging demonstrations of Lesseur's ability in front of various philanthropic societies, he was able to drum up enough support to open a small school for blind children in his apartment where he could teach 12 pupils. These first students showed France and the world that blind people could learn beyond what anyone could believe, and Huey, though he was ousted from the Royal Institute for Blind Children in 1802, had succeeded in establishing a permanent and revolutionary school and soon it would welcome its most illustrious alumnus. Louis Braille was born to a working-class family in Coupevray, France, in 1809. His father was a leather worker who specialized in harnesses for horses and had made a name for himself as a particularly skilled maker of ornate pieces. From an early age, Louis showed an aptitude for making and working on physical objects, and so it was at the age of three he wandered into his father's workshop, picked up an awl, and tried to imitate the motions he had seen his father working on for hours on end. As he was trying to force the awl through the leather, his hand slipped and the awl turned sharply up into his right eye. The injury immediately blinded him in that eye, but the severity of the injury put even the left eye in jeopardy. I've called up my dad, Dr. Lynn O'Neill, who was an ophthalmologist for more than 30 years, to help me understand how Braille's injury in one eye became a problem for his other eye. Can, Can you say the name of the condition again? Okay. Sympathetic ophthalmia. And what is it? Sympathetic ophthalmia is a disease where 
the normal or non-injured eye becomes inflamed and vision is lost due to injury in the exciting eye, the other eye. It goes a little something like this. In rare cases, when one eye is injured, the body's autoimmune response is triggered, jumping in to see if there are any infection that it needs to take care of at the wound site. But the eye is weird, and the autoimmune system can kind of freak out. So it's kind of isolated. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not like the blood flowing through your skin or your kidneys or, or your liver. It's kind of isolated. And so when it's damaged... It releases all these proteins that your immune system has never seen before. And it says, well, this is foreign material. We have to get rid of it. So that's why your immune system kicks into startup. The brain-blood barrier is more famous, but what we are dealing with here is the blood-eye barrier. And once the autoimmune system has found these weird but necessary proteins by getting into a damaged eye, it can, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly, start attacking those same perfectly healthy proteins in the other eye. It's an unusual case. I didn't know that actually happened to him until you uh, talked about it. Sympathetic ophthalmia is very rare, occurring in less than one half of 1% of all non-surgical eye injuries, and descriptions of it go back to ancient Greece. Modern treatments are fairly recent and take the form of high doses of steroids and, in extreme cases, removing the injured eye. While today Braille's left eye probably could have been saved, he was fortunate in that if it had been a three-year-old blind child even 20 years earlier, his destiny would have likely been pretty grim. His parents had, from the time of his accident at age three, done everything they could to foster his education, including sending him to the town's regular school, which was unheard of for a blind student. There, Braille excelled, though they realized that Louis wouldn't reach his full potential, not because of his limitations, but because of the school's. So while Braille entered the school as a promising student in a setting devoted to helping him succeed, there were still major obstacles in front of him. First, though Hue's embossed letter printing was light years ahead of anything before, only about a third of the students at the institute could ever learn to read it well, though Braille was one of them. Second, writing was still a near impossibility. The students were given metal sheets with letters and numbers etched into them, which they were to trace with a metal stylus to learn by muscle memory. Then to write, they had to replicate figures with ink pens that were easy to smear and prone to drying up, both undetectable to the blind student. The central problem was this. The people developing methods for blind students to learn to read and write were sighted, and thus could only think of the problem in terms of using letters as they saw them, of getting blind students fluent not just in their language, but in their means of creating and consuming that language. The second important thing that happened to Braille at the school after learning to read and write was, for the history of the blind, perhaps even more crucial. He became a teacher. He began teaching blind students as a blind teacher. And this way of thinking about education, not about what should be done, but about what actually worked for blind students, was the key to his major breakthrough. There was still one puzzle piece missing, though, and it showed up at the door of the school quite unexpectedly in 1821 in the form of a retired artillery officer named Nicolas-Marie Charles Barbier de la Serre. Thirteen years earlier, Barbier had created a form of writing in response to Napoleon's call for a method of transmitting orders at night without illumination. Barbier recalled a school lesson about ancient Greece that he thought might solve the problem. It was called Polybius' Square, and was comprised of a 5 by 5 grid, with each square representing a letter, with I and J sharing one. By placing a torch in one of these boxes, say on a hillside, anyone who could see the torch could decode a series of torch placements into a message. 
Barbier adapted this for military use by turning the torches into raised dots and simplifying the 5x5 grid to a 2x6 grid, where each dot represented not a single letter but a sound that when assembled formed words more quickly. The French military turned down Barbier's night writing, as he called it, but rather than discard something he had worked so hard to create, he thought perhaps it could be repurposed as a tool for the instruction of the blind. Barbier made his pitch to the acting director of the Institute for the Blind, who decided to give it a shot, but crucially decided to let his blind students decide for themselves whether to adopt it. Ultimately, the students rejected night writing for the same reason the military did. It was both too complicated and too limiting. The two-by-six column was simply too hard to decipher by touch, and the reliance on sounds made numbers, punctuation, and musical notation impossible. Barbier had devised a code, one that could decipher language, but not a language itself. Braille, though, realized that Barbier hadn't even quite understood the power of what he had made, or at least one feature of it. The breakthrough was not in the power of night writing to translate, but the creation of a writing system designed for touch, not translated into touch. The fundamental feature was the dot and its binary nature. Either the spot in the grid was raised or it wasn't. No more having to distinguish between an embossed lowercase i or l, just feel for the presence or absence of the dot. For the next three years, Braille developed his own variation. He stripped the letter grid from 2x6 to 2x3. This halved the amount of information a student would have to parse in a single character. Second, he made an individual dot pattern for each letter and number, and eventually punctuation marks, musical notes, mathematical, and so on. Now, if you've been counting the years as we've been going on, you will have realized that by the time Braille created a fully functional version, he was only 16 years old. This episode is sponsored by The Summer List by Amy Mason Doan. Named a Best Book of Summer 2018 by Pop Sugar, Coastal Living, Family Circle, and The Globe and Mail, the summer list is in the tradition of Judy Bloom's Summer Sisters. It's a tender yet tantalizing novel about two friends, the summer night they fell apart, and the scavenger hunt that reunites them decades later, until the clues expose a breathtaking secret that just might shatter them once and for all. Pick up The Summer List by Amy Mason Doan from Graydon House Books, wherever books are sold, or click the link in our show notes. Over the next 100 years, Braille's system spread over the globe to become the standard writing system for blind people, often overcoming well-meaning resistance from sighted people who had a hard time believing that something they could not readily recognize as writing was and remains the best solution. Blind people love to read. The same part of the brain that's working in a sighted person's brain, the visual cortex, is working when a blind person's reading with their fingers. So whatever you as a sighted person would want to read, most likely blind people want to read that too. I should have gotten this at the very top, but let's do this. Can you tell, give me your name and your title? Yeah, I'm Joe Quintanilla, and I'm the Vice President of Development and Major Gifts here at National Braille Press. In a lot of ways, the mission of the National Braille Press continues the mission of Valentin Hue, Louis Braille, and the other early advocates of the education of the blind. We produce materials in Braille for blind people to have access, whether they're children or adults. It costs two to three times more to produce material in Braille than it does in print. And we believe that a blind person shouldn't have to pay more for the same information that's available in print. And that's why we make all of our material uh, available for a comparable price or the same price that it would be in print. And though there have been multiple technological revolutions in the intervening centuries, Louis Braille's invention is still the gold standard. So I think one of the the common misperceptions about technology is that 
because of it, blind people don't need Braille. You have things that talk to you or things you talk to. And because of that, I think in the general public, and unfortunately even in the blind community, with educators and, and public school, there's this notion that because of this technology, you don't need Braille. But that actually is, is not right uh, for people who are blind. Because just like you would not ask a sighted person to go through life without reading and just listening and just talking to things, you shouldn't want that for blind people either. And Joe would know. I have a condition called retinitis pigmentosa, so I could never see regular size print. But I could see print on, you know, if it was like an inch big and, and dark letters, like a highlighter type. And so a lot of my material were written out for me by my teacher in legal size paper. And I might have like two or three math equations on legal size paper. And then they started to use other technology called a CCTV, closed circuit TV, where I can put a book or a page under a camera and it would magnify it on a 19-inch monitor. So through fifth, sixth grade, I was using the CCTV. I was also being taught Braille, but I also had this, you know, hang-up where I, I didn't want to be, quote, blind. And that uh, using my eyes was still, even though I was using magnification, was still not blind. And I also didn't want to get pulled out of class every couple days to go learn Braille because I wanted to be just like my classmates. In academic situations and with the right support, Joe could do what he needed to do without Braille. But it was when he was out of school and trying to make his own way that he ran into barriers that only Braille could have helped him overcome. My interest was being on radio, and I had a radio show in college. So I was looking to try to do some voiceover work, and I had a great internship where they said, well, we'll do a demo for you. We'll make a tape for you. And I thought I had the best memory in the world. And uh, I said, okay, can uh, you guys just, you know, record on to this tape, the script you want me to, you know, a couple of scripts you want me to read uh, for the voiceover demo. And they did. And I listened to it a couple of times and I thought I had it. And when I went to record, they'd stop me and they'd say, Joe, you put the in the wrong spot in that sentence, or you missed this word in that sentence. And I was kind of, you know, aghast because I thought, whoa, I, I have the best memory in the world. How am I missing these things? Because it sounded right to me. And I, and I said that to the, you know, the audio engineer, and they, and they said to me, Joe, when you get paid to read a copy, you got to read the copy. Then they said, well, okay, why don't we do this? We'll feed you the lines through the headset and deliver it. And that was, it was awful. I couldn't hear and pitch the lines at the right pace, at the right intonation. And that's when it really hit me. I can't really pursue this as a career because I can't read. But had I had Braille and learned it, enough to be able to read, then I would have just been reading a script with my fingers. And I'd be doing the same thing that a sighted voiceover person or radio personality would be doing, except they're doing it with their eyes, I'm doing it with my fingers. So rather than replacing Braille, modern technology works best for blind people as a way to amplify Braille's flexibility and power. 
the days of carrying six volumes of Braille in a book bag aren't necessary anymore. We've partnered with a company called InnoVision to work with them on, they've created something called the Braille Me, and it's a, a reader. So it's a much akin to, uh, I'll say, the Kindle, where you can read books on it. So again, having access uh, through technology and being able to have many more books available because through programs like Bookshare, where they can take electronic text and convert it into Braille text, it's you know never going to be as clean as hard copy. Or, or anything that goes through transcription and proofreading, but it still, you know, gives a lot more options for blind people to have books if they have this technology. Louis Braille died at age 40 from tuberculosis. In his later life, he supported himself by playing the organ, as it was one of the few professions he could pursue as a blind person. He didn't get to see the incredible ways in which his work would help generations of blind children, but it's not hard to imagine how he would have felt about it. The people who support our work who are blind and donate, who leave us in their will, they tell me these fantastic stories about how Braille has been such a monumental part of their family, from uh, a gentleman who his wife was sighted and they had children and they learned about our Children's Braille Book Club in the 1980s and became members and they read to her, their, their daughter now that they're grandparents, they rejoin the book club so they can read to their grandchild. These are adults who are blind, reading to sighted children, but having that experience of a grandparent reading to their grandchild or a parent reading to their child. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. If this is your first episode of Annotated or your 15th, if you like the show and want to do something for free and that's easy, go rate and review Annotated on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to my dad, Dr. Lynn O'Neill, and to Joe Quintanilla of the National Braille Press. If you or someone you know are interested in finding out more about the National Braille Press, go to braille.com. Until next time, read something great.